world is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. From business to art to sports, these changes are affecting every aspect of our lives. My name is Nick Kastner, and we're setting out to talk with the people who are altering the way things are done. Along with Alec McChesney, this is The Commonwealth. Jennifer Pitch is an author working to change America's perspective on the youth homeless epidemic. For her new book titled Displaced Generation, Stories of the Young, Homeless, and Their Paths to Housing, she conducted extensive interviews with multiple researchers, activists, and young people with firsthand experiences of homelessness. She is also the founder of the Midwest chapter of the Creators Institute. Jennifer, thank you for coming to the show with me today. Good to see you, Nick. Yes, yes. So we first know know each other from studying economics in Oxford for a summer of a few years ago. And if you would have if you would have told me while we were studying together that I would have a podcast and ha- invite you on as author, I would have been so damn excited. I know, and it's crazy to think that that was only a few years ago. We're mm-hmm. already at this point in our lives. Yeah. Yes. Um, so to start with, how did you how did you land on homelessness as as a topic to uh, to shed light on. Yeah. So with homelessness in general, I, if you had told me a year ago that I would have written a book on it, I would have been completely shocked. But for me, it it was always an issue that I cared about, especially Mm -hmm. after I actually witnessed a kind of shocking scene in my own hometown so Lincoln Nebraska Mm -hmm. where I was downtown coming out of a shop and I saw a young man similar in age to myself being pretty brutally beaten up by another man who was about the same age but you could tell he was well endowed while this other man was clearly homeless Mm -hmm. while what shocked me the most out of the scene though was all the bystanders nearby including people that could have stepped in and helped were just silently watching and they were instead videotaping or filming the event that was going on. That was the first event that really triggered this sort of want to approach this subject for me because I remember after I had uh, left and gone home, I, I had talked to other people about it, but I was like, you know, this just doesn't feel like enough. I mm-hmm. feel like I haven't done anything that will change the situation for other people that may be homeless and more vulnerable to acts of violence or Mm -hmm. what else they may be facing on the streets so that one event that sparked sparked this um this interest for you were were the police involved or was it was there an incident that sparked the the like physical altercation you know i walked into the scene midway through so there were no police nearby that I saw. And by the time I got there, the guy was – I kind of shouldered my way through the crowd. And mm-hmm. the guy was on the ground with the other guy kind of clutching him by the shoulders. Mm-hmm. And that's when the violence started occurring. But police really didn't get involved until after a friend and I – we kind of rushed away because we were like, there's nothing we can do. Let's go search for police. Mm-hmm. And the police men that kind of finally came, they broke up the fight, but it wasn't fight. I don't know if you could really call it that, yeah. but it really didn't happen till 
way after the brutality occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I first want to start with the uh, issue you chose to tackle. Your, your book describes it as, as an epidemic. How, how big of, a, of an issue is homelessness in America? Homelessness in America is a lot larger than I first realized when mm-hmm. I was delving into this issue. There's about f- half a million in the nation that are homeless every single year. And for a while, that number was decreasing. And I think in about the early 2000s, the number started to decrease. But in the past couple years, it's been on the rise annually. Specifically, the groups that are uh, rising in homelessness include people who are minorities, women, and youth. There's actually about 30% of homeless people who are youth. A big aspect of your book is tackling the why. What did you What did you find out in like what What is causing What is causing this this increase that, that you just touched on? I think that with the increase in homelessness, as opposed to what we thought homelessness was even a few decades ago, is due to the economic downfalls that we have in our societal structure. So we don't really have a lot of safety nets for people when they fall into rough times. And traditionally, uh, talking to people who grew up in older generations, when they pictured homelessness, they would picture older transient men who um, may be homeless due to substance abuse or addiction. And what we see now is that's not the case. Since the about the 1980s, we saw a more drastic permeant rise in homelessness that was actually due to several factors, mm-hmm. including uh, urban population, gentrification of neighborhoods, uh, especially a lack of affordable housing that is available in the nation. So we have a lot of people who are earning incomes that actually won't afford the housing they need to have that sort of security. Mm -hmm. And so I think with youth especially, they face those issues, but they also have to deal with the family issues that can occur as well. So they may face uh, violence at home or a lack of acceptance for issues that they are going through. So they kind of get the twofold part of it. What inf- what information surprised you the most while researching researching for this book? So the two tidbits, as I was I um, while I was while I was reading, I um, I had a, a notepad on my phone, and the two that that really shocked me where I when when I see homeless people my my notion is always the like especially in Lincoln we have a, a really strong homeless shelter and and most most cities have strong homeless shelter systems so I always just ask myself like why aren't they in the homeless shelter but the two pieces of information that kind of answered that question for me were that uh, homeless shelters don't separate sleeping quarters by age or gender um, because of that many homeless <laughs> choose to uh, choose 
just stay in the streets over going to the shelters. And then the uh, homeless shelters also have have pest problems with with the rate of residents turning over that they that they can't get rid of like fleas or or just pests that that live on on humans. That was one ma- one major takeaway for me, but was there something that that surprised you? Yeah, there are actually a lot of things that doing research in this topic really surprised me. I think one thing that I didn't realize and it seemed it may just come as so obvious to people from older generations and ours is that homelessness actually didn't exist the way that we know it today. So as I was talking to people who grew up and were alive during even a few decades ago in the 1970s, say, hmm. uh, they didn't really have homelessness on the streets like we have it now. Like I, I quoted a scholar in the area in my book who talked about – he was – one of his quotes about housing in – 1976 was that no Western nation could feasibly get away with letting its uh, citizens live on the streets. So basically saying that no Western nation could feasibly get away with homelessness. But then we look at every single Western nation today and it seems to be this sort of epidemic that you see in every nation. Mm-hmm. I And it's just shocking to me that we kind of let this problem escalate to the point that it has or at least it's not more at a topic of attention. Mm-hmm. Did you find any um, any solutions to this to this issue that that seem seem viable? How do we fix this this growing problem? So, of course, there's no one fix, easy solution to mm-hmm. homelessness, or else I'm sure it wouldn't be at the point that it is today. But. I think as complex as this issue is, there are a lot of research-backed solutions out there. And that was kind of my goal with wanting to research this topic was to promote ideas that had a lot of backing to them and could really help people who are going through these issues. So that said, I think that with the demographic I was particularly focused on youth and young adults, so people who are under the age of 25, Mm -hmm. what I found was that they are a demographic that is thankfully not usually going to be chronic homeless. So they're not going to be homeless for the rest of their lives. So what they really need when they're going through this very vulnerable period is transitional housing. So housing that will help them get to the next step in their lives. I think at the same time, they need housing that isn't going to just say, like, you only have this amount of time, like, you only have a year to live here before you have to go back on the streets. Because if that's the case, then in those are the types of situations where if you're forcing someone out, usually that means that they don't have the resources or the tools or they're just not at the place to have um, – secure housing on their own. Mm-hmm. So I know one model I looked into, the foyer model, is very popular in the UK, Australia, and there's been it's been brought over to New York to try. And that's a model where young adults are able to live 
in it for until the age of about 25. So hmm. when they're not considered young adults anymore yeah. and they aren't forced out before then. And it's also one where they they can be pursuing and they're encouraged to uh, education and jobs. And at the same time, they're only paying up to about 30 percent of the normal income to live there. Are those programs funded by funded by governments or like private in, private individuals? Yeah. So. I think with a lot of these models, what happens is they will – they may be a private enterprise, but they will be applying for grants through the government to okay. help with their funding. Hmm. So it's a combination kind of. Okay, interesting. And then um, the uh, the next topic I, I um, would like to discuss is how you approached tackling a very heavy topic that's, that has complex and uh, – that has complexities and nuance – what was that like? Yeah, so that's a good question. I was honestly a little nervous to discuss a topic that was this heavy, especially mm-hmm. because I'm not someone who has ever personally experienced it. So I didn't want to promote the message from a place that seemed inconsiderate of the people who may actually have gone through mm-hmm. homelessness or are experiencing that kind of a problem. Um I was writing actually I was when I was writing this book I had reached out to a couple of my friends to just like ask their opinions and just tell them about it and I had one friend who was like you know I think that what you're doing is really great but I'm just a little concerned because I don't want you to come off in your writing as kind of having this sort of white savior complex Mm -hmm. and I think that that was actually something that kind of like made me take a step back and like reevaluate my intentions and first of all why was I writing this book but also was I writing it in a way that would really do justice to the voice of people who I didn't you know necessarily know what it felt to be like them Mm -hmm. so to kind of I really appreciated that advice and to kind of remedy it. I I think that it is important to discuss heavy topics and mm-hmm. that isn't something that I wanted to stop me from talking about something that I really did deeply care about but also give voice to people who didn't normally have it. Um, so I decided that I would go and reach out to those individuals who were homeless, who actually were experiencing those things and make sure that I was approaching the subject in a way that they would understand and appreciate themselves. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to let you know how you can help us grow this community. We view the Commonwealth as a group of people working to change the world. By listening and supporting this show, you're crucial members of the Commonwealth. To continue this work, we need help growing our community. Please invite your friends to like the Commonwealth's Facebook page. The link and directions are in our show notes. Now, back to the conversation. How did you, how did you go about contacting the, uh, the homeless youth that you interviewed? You know, it is kind of difficult with homeless youth, youth especially because they're considered the invisible homeless because mm-hmm. you can't normally compare to other demographics of homelessness. You see them more on the streets. They're the ones that kind of are out and about in public spaces. But with homeless youth, a lot of them are the people who are on couches surfing or they're in sleeping in cars. So you can't just walk around and happen upon them as 
often. In my case, I had a lot of connections who were able to let me speak to people who actually had been going through homelessness in the past or adults who had had um, gone through it. And they kind of were the ones who gave me most of my interviews of, you know, I've I've either had kids, I've adopted kids who have gone through this, mm-hmm. or I personally have gone through it myself. Was it a challenge getting those people on on the record to like talk publicly about it, or were they pretty open to it once they once they understood your intentions of the book? It, it, it's a mix for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this was actually a really interesting thing. Um, I had one anonymous interviewer not want to give me. They wanted me to include their stories, and they thought it was really important, but they didn't want me to give the names because a lot of the kids that they fostered may have been in more urban populations. They may have to deal with more like gang-related violence, Mm. and they didn't want gangs to be hearing about the – or know that it was that actual kid. Earlier you mentioned like the white guilt complex – or the like white guilt complex I think is what – A white savior yeah. Yeah. Earlier, the white savior complex. How how did you keep that in check when talking with people who have been affected by gang violence and, like you said, just have a very different background and story than yourself? So yeah, I think that when addressing the whole white savior complex, it's really about just coming to each individual person from a place of you know this is your story, this isn't mine. I don't know. Uh, exactly what you've been through but i want to know i want to understand and not forcing a solution on people and thinking that you know best that because maybe you may have more education in, from them that somehow that may be more valuable than their personal experiences actually going through something mm-hmm. interesting to, to contrast the the people directly affected by homelessness. You also interviewed thought leaders and, and activists in this field. Most notably, you talked with Dr. Sam. How do you pronounce his last name? Tisembris. Tisembris. Okay. When writing that down, I knew I, um, I I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. But Dr. Sam Tisembris, you interviewed for this book. And I was doing some research on it beforehand that the Washington Post stated that multiple multiple cities have eradicated homeless, homelessness by implementing the model he created. And in that same article, one of his former critics compared his work to the first person suggesting that the world is round in this industry. How did you get connected with such a like disruptor in, in this field? I found, I was doing research on the housing first model, and I found an article that was pretty much titled, the this is the man who has solved homelessness. Yeah. And it was an article about Dr. Sam Decemberis. So I looked more into him, and I found out that he had started this organization called Pathways to Housing. Okay. And I ended up emailing them just saying, hey, I have been doing research for this book. Can I speak to a representative and just ask them a couple questions about housing first in your organization? And I got an email back, I don't know if it was just like a half hour later, directly from Dr. Sam Tisembris. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is cool. So I ended up setting up an interview with him. And I was – and looking back, it's just crazy to me that I was pretty much – on the phone interviewing this guy in my college dorm, this guy who had literally uh, started and helped 
been the researcher behind this huge model that I know even presidents like um, Barack Obama had backed in a lot of the policies that they Hmm. put forward for homelessness in their years. What was it like interviewing someone with such like prestige and and recognition in his field? Like, did did you have any self-doubt when you called him from your dorm room? Yeah, I mean, I think throughout this entire process, I've kind of been dealing with imposter syndrome. Okay. I think that it's just so surreal to me that I've been writing a book and that I actually got it published. So when I was on the phone with Dr. Sam Tesemaris, I remember he was talking to me and I think he made some comment like, oh, yeah, you probably know that about that with, you know, you probably have kids. And I was like, oh, no, not yeah. yet. Like, he probably had no idea he was talking to some college student at the time. Mm-hmm. But that, I think that's the cool part about it is that he didn't know that I was able to ask questions and be able to have this conversation with him as just two individuals who really care about an issue. And he was I was definitely terrified before I got on the phone with him, but Mm -hmm. he was so kind and very charismatic and a great conversationalist. So I was able to learn a lot. So that's one question I get a lot with this, with the show of I've, I've been able to also talk to pretty remarkable people and people always ask me like, Oh, like, how do you, how do you have the confidence? Like make that call or like, how did you get over that to that feeling? A lot of that just comes with experience and time and also just kind of getting over, you know, if you make a mistake or if you ask the wrong question or something like that, there's, you can always come back from it. And I think that for me, it's it's been such a huge learning process that I've kind of had the mentality of, even if I'm not maybe asking the right questions now when learning to interview, that this will help me get to that point. Usually people are so understanding and generous, especially on when you're talking about a subject that they care about and they're mm-hmm. experts about, that they really do want that knowledge to get out there and they want to be interviewed so other people can learn about that information. That's what I had to kind of tell myself yeah. to get through it. And, and my, big th- my big thing is I have no other option. You know, like when I reached out to the guy and he responded and wants to talk with me, like I have to talk to him regardless if I feel comfortable or like insecure. Yeah. Or, like I'm going to do it. Like I have to. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. yeah. It'd be an injustice not to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you also founded the Midwest chapter of the Creators Institute, which is a program that was founded at the University of Georgetown that supports students in writing and publishing a book. First, could you start and give us some context on like wh- how how did this program get its start? Yeah. Um, so the Creator Institute was started by a professor at Georgetown who specializes in entrepreneurial skills and kind of teaching that to students. And he, Eric Coaster, is his name, and he was kind of. He was in his fifth year of teaching, and he got to this point where he was kind of burnt out because he had felt like in his classes that he was going to class every day teaching these students entrepreneurial skills, and they were coming out of it without any actual results in the fact that he went and looked back to see if any students were entrepreneurs after, and he taught about six classes a year, so he said that he found out that only one out of all these thousands of students per year was actually 
on becoming an entrepreneur. And that was very disappointing for him. So he decided that he was going to quit teaching. And he went and talked to the person in charge and told him this. And they're like, no, you can't quit. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know. I'm so great, blah, blah, Mm blah. And they were like, no, really, we don't have anyone to fill your position next (laughs) semester. And so he was like, all right, all right, I'll do one last class. But this time he had wanted to do kind of a different approach. So he came to that last class and was like, you know what? We're going to write books and publish books. And, of course, if you were an undergraduate student sitting in his class, you'd probably be like, all right, how do I drop? Is there any other class I want to take? But through the course, he was able to get all these students to write full manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And what he really wanted from that wasn't just, you know, to say like, oh, hey, I I wrote a book. I'm an undergraduate student. But to get these students to the point where they could use that book to get them credibility and Mm -hmm. where they wanted to get long term. Okay. And what about this program attracted you? Like a lot of other people, I've always wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. But I I really liked the idea of uh, being able to join this sort of community that would push me to be more creative and uh, push me to like set deadlines for myself and really just sort of get out of my comfort, comfort zone to create something that I might not otherwise would have on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you just mentioned the like using this as a kind of stepping stone onto the the next the next thing of your life. So I just as a like fellow ambitious young person, I I wanted to know your approach of do you like do you have like a 20 year target or like a career target of like I specifically want to be an expert in this field or was it just like oh I like this book will turn into something what am I passionate about like do you plan your stepping stones out or do you just like go from one to the next no I do not have a 20 year plan okay. that would be uh, I mean some people might and if they do mm-hmm. I, congrats I am very jealous for me I've always been sort of passionate about social issues and okay. kind of Uh, wanted to get into that field more so for me the first question they ask in sort of the creator institute as well is where do you want to be long term okay and so I thought about that and I thought about what were my passions and where do I want to see myself and my answer was I want to do something that will help people who are starting with affordable housing issues so Mm -hmm. I think I think that you don't necessarily have to have like a target issue or like a five-year plan to know it, you, you're passionate about something and that this book could open a lot of opportunities for you or creating something that'll help your credibility in a certain field mm-hmm. will widen whatever pathway you want to take and the sort of opportunities you could get farther down the line in that field. Yeah. You mentioned credibility. What what do you think credibility looks like to to people our age? I think that we live in kind of a changing workforce or job field and the fact that degrees don't have the same sort of weight that they might have used to. Mm-hmm. I, I know that that's something 
you can, you kind of hear people complain about a lot, you know? Like, you, you hear people kind of say that they go and get a degree at an institution, but it doesn't really have a lot of relevance to their job. And that's sort of what <clears throat> uh, Professor Eric Koster talks about is that there's sort of this science of credibility that is saying now that we live in a job market now where it's the people who are creating their credibility rather than borrowing their credibility from institutions who are differentiating themselves and starting to get ahead earlier on. And I wasn't sure I believed that at first, but then I found out that when there was some research on the Forbes 30 under 30, so Mm -hmm. people that are pretty shown to be successful at a younger age and what they found out about what all these people have in common. And it's not just 30 people they're looking at. Each year, there's about 600 people in the 30 under 30, and they looked at it for a huge expanse of years, was basically that all of these people, about like 85% of them had created something, Um, while at the same time, only about 20% of them had gone to a really, you know, an institution such as an Ivy League. Hmm. And another 20% of them didn't even go to college at all. So I think that we kind of are seeing that the thing that's differentiating people and helping them kind of get success early on is when they've created something or when they're willing to take that risk to be entrepreneurs and innovators in their field. Hmm. Interesting. So, where what what's the next step? What what do you think you're going to do after after this book? What's the next step for Jennifer Pitch? So, my hope is that I will attend law school coming up here, and I want to pursue a degree in public interest and help people that may be going through homelessness by pursuing legislation and policies that advance affordable housing issues. All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you for coming on the show with me today. I am looking forward to seeing um, seeing where where you end up and, and the path you take. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and that is it for today's episode. Thanks for being a member of the Commonwealth. If you enjoyed this conversation, please tell your friends about us and leave a review. If you're interested in helping us grow this community, please invite your friends to like our Facebook page. The link and directions are in our show notes. We release episodes every Monday, so stay tuned for next week.